This evening's talk <clears throat> is about spiritual urgency. And I often like to talk about this, as some of you know, uh, at the beginning of a retreat. And so beginning with some questions. Why do we practice? Why do you practice? What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you here to this retreat? And a few more questions some of which have probably visited uh, your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questionings and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What's life about? What is death? Its significance, its meaning. Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I, or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and the difficulties in this changing world, in this changing country that we live in, or most of us live in? (laughs) With all of the challenges within me and all around me, right here and now, in this very life. So again, what is it that brings me to practice? Why am I in this retreat right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling and stewing over these questions. But rather, these questions can be taken in as a motivating force. A motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So, as I've already mentioned, this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is samvega which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually it's a term that's uh, somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of Samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. 
And then the classical text goes on to say, Samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So, Samvega is an urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken for many people who practice. I think it's important to note at this point that spiritual urgency is an energy that's not at all fraught with any kind of tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind, a quality of heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, the natural laws of the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. So we'll take a look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing and seeing and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Also, for many of us, the death of someone close to us in our life can very certainly move the heart towards the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken. And for some of you, this sense of urgency, samvega, may be experienced through the feeling, uh, through feeling the enormity or maybe the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges of life. The subtleties in life from this perspective, the suffering in life from this perspective. In general, maybe in the big picture, and also, of course, maybe more specifically through the various permutations of the hardships and the challenges in your life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long accustomed or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or judgment, prejudice, in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age 
or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague and maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge within yourself to move to this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us, it might be an emotional state that can be somewhat difficult or somewhat disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. An important point that I uh, like to make is to recognize and to acknowledge that continuing all along the way of our practice, all along the years of our practice. Samvega is an essential and a motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I might be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I may be just simply an observer of such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world, and the often jarring or violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart. It's a response to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. <coughs> when Samvega is present, It may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, 
an inspired heart-mind, a passion, if you will, for spiritual practice, something that I'm sure at least some of you, uh, if not all of you, have felt at times. And, at least in part, what brought you here this evening and brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me quite a bit, actually. And I think it's safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. It's one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here right now. Teachers, students alike. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community, such as this one, even if it's just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice in the midst of the silence, which is pretty amazing. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us toward practicing? What along the way of our practice keeps urging us, keeps moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while he was being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person totally dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very, very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and our culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before. And to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his existence to search 
for the truth of the nature of life. He was quite profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated. Inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same case for us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted, breaking that word down, reacted by ignoring them, or maybe distracting ourselves in myriad ways by, the, by where and how we spend our time. So for instance, all of the various ways we react by doing what we do to the various aspects of our aging bodies. How do we react to that? Or maybe we've reacted to these messengers by pretending or even believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that we stop reacting and we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than by constantly feeling overrun with maybe sadness, anguish, fear, or by being contracted with the feelings of attachment, anger, rage, confusion, in relationship to the natural unfolding and the natural occurrences of life. I mean, really, truly, aren't our closest surroundings full of stirring things? stirring in the sense of samvega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart to some degree insensitive or reactive. 
And this can even happen to us, some of us, in relationship to the teachings of the Buddha. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual and emotional and spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, for some of us, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and the practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which if we look carefully It constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new unfolding variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining, deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we begin to sense and see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness this suffering, dukkha, which is the second of the four noble truths. And again, very simply put, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third noble truth, the truth that, in fact, There is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to our predicament. The solution being, again, very simply put, but actually it's that simple, not easy, is to not cling. Not cling. But rather to see things utterly clearly and just simply be with them as they are and then act or respond to life from this place as life unfolds. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice that's offered by the Buddha. That, in fact, each one of us in this room are engaged in walking along at our own pace, right here, right now, in this very life, in this very retreat.
as some of you have experienced, and sometimes maybe quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear or anger or grief or yearning or clinging and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed or maybe a new sight of some manifestation of poverty or prejudice or a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or one's own bodily discomfort or of course myriad other flavors of our human experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and to deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, totally, always very available for each of us all the time any time. So for instance, a moment of, or successive moments maybe, of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations, the constantly changing nature of mental states, or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal, It's all anatta, the Pali word for not-self. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing and seeing and knowing, 
we are often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Or depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us have many, many stories. Many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during uh, practice meetings. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas, telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred, uh, being stirred, being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. And the stirring being done sometimes by the Buddha himself, or being done by one of the arhats, one of the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. And in case some of you don't know, devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths, and sometimes long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a, <clears throat> a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited this woodland thicket having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good and desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached and addressed him in verse. And this is the uh, conversation from the deva. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, uh, meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, for food, for various objects and various experiences. 
And then the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, a monk, or a practicing yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I just saw some birds in my yard flicking off that sticky dust the other day. So easy, you know. (laughs) This next dialogue takes place shortly after the uh, Buddhist Parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arshanship, to attain full enlightenment, before the first Buddhist council was to convene, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area, that lived in that area, found out that he was there, they were continually coming to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of Anicca, in the law of impermanence. Well, the forest-dwelling deva there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda attended it as a fully enlightened being, he then decided to come and provoke and inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama, so that's why the deva called him Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, said the deva, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? <laughs> Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So I specifically picked this dialogue because though, of course, uh, none of us are in the same position as Ananda was, we're certainly uh, often caught up, we're often quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, right? Both 
externally and internally and neglect or even maybe lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not, of course, to neglect what needs to be attended to. But to know, to really know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. Another verse. On one occasion, a bhikkhuni was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then that deva that inhabited the woodland thicket, having a sense of compassion for the bhikkhuni and desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva speaking. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. Many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller, subsiding on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realm. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued to think thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as quite potent thoughts of sensuality, while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited this same woodland, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him, spoke these verses to this bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. It's one of my favorite lines. Do you ever feel like you're being eaten by your thoughts? Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, let go, having let go, or uh, of attending to things as, uh, as permanent as having let go of this, of attending to things as permanent as self, as desirable because they're pleasurable which is what this bhikkhu had done, although not at that moment. 
the deva says you should re- reflect carefully meaning attending to their true nature the true nature their true characteristics with a very careful attention the pali word for this is yani somanasikara attending to them as impermanent as not self and thus unsatisfactory in nature and then the deva goes on to say by basing your thoughts on the teacher and in this case the buddha on the dhamma on the sangha and on your own virtues you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well and then when you are suffused with gladness you will make an end to suffering then that bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency the last uh, verse that i'd like to share with you is uh, about a bhikkhu who after returning from his alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day then this bhikkhu would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus when the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this she thought hmm having received a meditation subject from the buddha and entered into the forest to meditate this bhikkhu instead of meditating uh instead is meditating on the scent of flowers if his craving for scent increases it will destroy his welfare let me draw near and reproach him she thought so out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice with more diligence the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows and the title of this short sutta is called the thief of scent and this is the deva speaking when you sniff this lotus flower an item that has <coughs> not been given this is one factor of theft you dear sir are a thief of scent and the bhikkhu responds i do not take i do not damage i sniff the lotus from afar so for what reason do you say that i am a thief of scent one who digs up the lotus stalks one who damages the flowers one of such rough behavior why is this one not spoken to and the deva responds when a person is rough and fierce badly soiled like a nursing cloth i have nothing to say to that one but it is to you i ought to speak for a person without blemish always in quest of purity even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud and the bhikkhu responds to the deva surely spirit you understand me and you have compassion for me please oh spirit speak to me again whenever you see 
such a deed. And the deva responds. And the first time I read this, I was quite surprised by the deva's response from so many thousands of years ago. The deva says, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So, it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings really are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and we experience a kind of courage that helps the development and the blossoming of the heart qualities of faith and of confidence. Each of these qualities or these capacities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are really essential in helping us to break through what, for some of you, might be a sense of some degree of timidity or hesitation, maybe fear, some degree of fear, or possibly doubt, or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking with a group of his disciples in one sutta, he says, Rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease, disease, dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? And again he says, rouse yourselves, sit up, resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. He goes on. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which many humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity 
When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish. And then the Buddha says, Negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, on the the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth and aging and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath. That not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're also asked to engage in a moment to moment observation of the cycle and to be really completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is really a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experience of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from some outside experience or some outside being, but it's coming from in here in here, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence and coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that, in fact, yes, there is an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular qualities of mind, particular beautiful and clear qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila. Concentration. Mindfulness. Clear comprehension energy, courage, joy, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities, these capacities, really sprouting out of the original energy 
of spiritual urgency that at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution. A solution that's within the power of every human being. A solution that certainly many of you here have begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, that you've come to know from your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates Sambhaga and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe uh, a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. And it's a story that I found to be uh, very inspiring. And uh, the first time that I read it, uh, it invoked quite a strong spiritual urgency in, in me. Uh, and it continues to move me every time I read it. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. 
I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading. But he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? (laughs) I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity, and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasel's, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live, and I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of samvega in them, to 
exhort them to keep going along the path. This particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan tradition of the Parinibbana Sutta. And I found this particular transition or translation to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether animate or inanimate, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing the talk this evening, we come right back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit together silently for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.